Welcome to this podcast from the Bay Church. We hope you're blessed by the message. To find out more, please visit our website at www.the-bay-church.org.uk. I'm just locating myself in the the dark spot. When I was um, pondering this morning, I was thinking, I wonder if I should give a little health warning beforehand. (laughs) I wonder if I should say things like, I'm going to say some things this morning that's going to make you think. (laughs) And I'm not going to apologize about that. I'm going to say things this morning that you're going to disagree with. Some of you quite badly. Okay? But I want you to hear what I say rather than hear what you think I say. Okay? I don't want you to filter it through whatever you're carrying or whatever you mean brought up as and then kind of take a reaction to it. I want you to hear what I say. So consequently, I want you to be open to the Holy Spirit. And I thought, no, I needn't say all that. (laughs) Because you should be that way prepared anyway. So... We've come to the end of our Sunday morning series on Acts of the Apostles. I don't think there's any spoiler to know that of the 13 people depicted there, all of them die. One of them, only one of them dies by natural means through old age. The rest of them are killed off in some way. But we won't get into the detail of that this morning because we've had We've had six hours, I've totted it up, we've had over six hours of teaching over the last few weeks, uh, looking at things like fellowship, healing, generosity, oneness, heavenly encounters, prayer, endurance, mission, and more. And if you've missed any of them, most of them are online. In fact, all but one are online. All but last week are online, and they can be easily accessed from the media section of our new website, which is thebaychurch.co.uk, which is a different web address to our old web address. So take note. So you've got no reason for not going and picking up on some of the teaching that you've missed in this series. But the big question is, okay, we've heard a lot of teaching, but what have we learned from this teaching? And in what ways has our thinking, our actions, and our lifestyle changed as a result? That's the $64,000 question. Because as a Christian, you'll well know that during your life, you will hear countless sermons. Many, many, many sermons. And you've got many, many more to hear as you continue your Christian walk. But the question, what's the fruit? What is the fruit of all that sitting down for 40 minutes listening? What is the fruit in your life? I got, I got to thinking, are sermons a bit like lottery tickets? 
Is there only one in 45 million that's a real winner? <laughs> or, on a nice day like today, should we be out litter picking instead? Should we be doing something responsible and socially aware and something where we can come back and think, I've accomplished something. I've picked up some litter today. We could be doing that instead of sitting here listening to me. So what expectations do you have that the Holy Spirit will speak to you during a sermon? The Christian walk is one that involves regular repentance. Now sadly, that word has acquired negative religious meaning. Repentance. Confession is another word. But repentance definitely has got a negative slant to it. It's almost got, as, it, as my illustration shows there, a finger pointing aspect or a finger wagging aspect to it. Whereas repentance simply means to change your thinking. And as well as changing your thinking, as a consequence, to act differently. Okay? Renew your mind. Live your lifestyle differently. I mean, for example, Matthew 4, just to take an example. Matthew 4 verse 17 says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Right? Or you could equally as well say, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, change your thinking and your lifestyle, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's what it means. That's what repentance means. Now we're all impacted differently by scripture and how we personally hear God. That's why one person's Revelation is another person's meh. It's true. It's a, it's a theological word, that, meh. <laughs> Did you know that? It means indifference. It's actually from Yiddish origins. You can almost hear the Yiddishness in it, can't you? Meh. And it was, it was populated, it was popularized by the Simpsons believe it or not, not the Simpsons at the back there, <laughs> but Barton family popularized it in the 70s and 80s, I think it was, if not the 90s. But it's true. It's true. One person's revelation is another person's meh because what happens is we're all on a different part of the walk with God. So you get something which really... Really, God speaks to you deeply, and then you go and share it with somebody, and you just watch their eyes kind of glaze over. Because it doesn't have the same impact to them. It doesn't have the same impact to them at all. Revelation means an uncovering, a disclosure of divine truth. God speaks his truth into our heart and spirit, not into our head. Our head our, sorry, our heart is a place of transformation. God speaks his word, it's planted, it roots, and it bears fruit. Whereas our head is just for storage, really. And the problem with our head is that it often misleads us regarding our 
maturity. What happens is we accumulate information in our head and our thoughts act a bit like bouncers on the door, right? And you're all familiar with bouncers on the door. I can, I can sense a clubbing history with you lot. And what happens is our thoughts vet what we hear. So we've heard something 10 years ago, which we remember. And then we get hit with that truth again. God hits us with that truth again. Or you hear it in a sermon, you see. And you think, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Because you already know it in your head. It misleads us. We all talk about and mentally grasp things that we haven't yet grown into. That's why they say that our speech is about five to ten years ahead of our actual experience. And that's why meditating on Scripture is so helpful. And you'd be pleased to know, completely biblical. And I add that because I know that the word meditation kind of wrangles with some Christians because they associate it with new age. Right? Hippie stuff. Right? But I'm not talking about sitting cross-legged and emptying your mind and chanting om. Right? That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, taking scripture, could be a phrase, it could be a passage. You know when you're reading scripture and something just leaps off the page to you? You've read that, you've read it countless times before, but today, for some reason, the Holy Spirit highlights something and it kind of leaps off the page to you. I'm talking about taking that bit that leaps off the page or a specific verse that you're given or a rhema word that the Spirit gives you and that you ponder what it says, you reflect on it, you consider it, you imagine, you mull it over, you chew it over, Well, speaking in tongues would be good because you can multitask as a Christian, you know. When you speak in tongues, your your head, your, your thinking is unfruitful. You know, you don't have to think about it. So if you're thinking and concentrating on something which God has given you at the same time as speaking in tongues, it helps you to meditate on that particular passage, that particular scripture. This could be for moments, could be for hours, could be for days. I don't mean non-stop days. I mean something you keep going back to something which you keep returning to, to get the most from it, to find out why was it that the Holy Spirit highlighted this particular passage to me? What is the significance for me now, today? I would much rather approach Scripture that way than doggedly read my way through a reading list, tick, I've done today's bit. You allow the Holy Spirit to enlighten you, to reveal fresh revelation and unlock new truth. And the more that we practice this form of meditation, the more we benefit from it. And I believe it's, it's superior to Bible study, where study just usually doesn't get any further than up here, if we're not careful. But, because we're lazy, because you think, God, oh, that meditation lark sounds a bit like hard work to me. Because we're lazy, we're more likely to opt for the fast food approach instead. What does that mean? That's where we rely on somebody else's understanding of Scripture. We all do it. We feed on second-hand revelation. 
Bill Johnson says this. C.S. Lewis wrote this. Smith Wigglesworth said this. Now, I'm not saying that it is bad to do that per se. In fact, it can be good. It can be good, but it shouldn't be all that we're feeding on, right? God desires that it should become a stepping stone, a springboard to direct encounter with him, not just an ability to repeat what other people have said about a particular passage or an experience of God. You cannot live your Christian life based on repeating somebody else's revelation. And the worrying thing is that we can treat the Bible in a similar way. What happens is we allow our reading of the Bible to replace a living relationship with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And instead, if we're not careful, what happens is we learn about and we relate to a historical Jesus on the page, and we read about his life, we read about his sayings, and then we respond in our own strength with some DIY lifestyle choices and try to be a Christian. But that's religion and not relationship. But it is very, very common. And it is easy to slip into. The Bible, this is where I might start saying things that rattle a few cages, okay. The Bible is scripture which contains the word of God. The Bible is not the final word. It alone is not a definitive instruction manual for living. Okay? When we read scripture, it should inspire us. It should motivate us to seek fresh, first-hand revelation and to hunger for more of God's presence. We shouldn't be content with merely reading the text, doing our bit, covering our passage. That's why, I, personally, I'm not a great believer in reading the Bible through in a year. Because, in a sense, what happens is the task of reading takes over. You need to do your passage. You need to do your five chapters on a Sunday and, and two chapters on a whatever it is day. That takes over from actually encountering the benefit of Scripture. Oops, sorry. Scripture is a God-inspired doorway to relational encounter with Jesus, the living word. When I was a new Christian, and I was... I was born into, for want of an expression, the Anglo-Catholic tradition. Although I didn't know it was the Anglo-Catholic tradition because I had no church background at all. Um, and I got confirmed. And then my sister and her husband came up from down south, which was a special event because they didn't usually venture north because it was too cold. <laughs> Keeps, keeps people, you know, where they should be, right? 
We don't want too many Southerners to discover what's happening up here, do we? But anyway, because of family links, she felt obliged to come up to see me. Um, and she sat through one of the church services, and then she said to me, she said, do you know, Peter? She said, the Bible is scripture. Jesus is the word of God. And it went right over my head. And a clue what she was talking about, really. Probably because of the tradition that I was birthed into, you know. But since then, the more, the more I have grasped that, the more I've appreciated what she said. And it is true. The Bible is scripture. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the living word of God. And we are spiritual beggars if we choose to live our lives constrained by our understanding of scripture. In fact, that is such a good saying, I think we all should say it together. Because if you take nothing away with you today, you should take that away, right? So you think you can manage to repeat that? Scripture, oh, sorry about that. Oh, it's gone away. There we are. I bet I've been confusing you, haven't I? We are spiritual beggars if we choose to live our lives constrained by our understanding of Scripture. With special emphasis on the word our understanding of. Because I get into most arguments with people when they say, no, 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 I don't agree with what you're saying about Scripture. But most of my oughts are with people's understanding of Scripture. Because once you are set in your ways, once you've got your little approach to understanding the Bible, that's it, it's set. And then you read everything through the glasses of your understanding. That I have problems with. So you say, well, where does this leave me then? Well, this leaves you exposed. This leaves you vulnerable. This leaves you at the mercy of a gracious God who seeks to lavish his love upon you without measure. This leaves you with a God who desires to get past the restrictions and the lies that we believe and the religious walls of protection that we've built around ourselves so that, we can, that, so that he can embrace us with his freedom and his acceptance. Once we don't use scripture as our filter, our understanding of scripture as our filter, There's a little saying for you. Knowing that God is our Father is one thing. Choosing to pursue that relationship and allowing him to father us is something else altogether. His desire is that we share his heart, that we get to know his ways as well as his works. So I thought I would pose a few questions this morning for us to consider. So, is your theology which is a posh way of saying what you believe about God. Is your theology, your belief about God and the way that you handle scripture, is it liberating or is it legalistic? Hmm? Is, it, is it a doorway to divine encounter? Are you 
led by the Spirit or are you boxed in and hindered by your personal biblical interpretation? Whatever that may be. See, the question, the thing is, it's easier to follow theology than it is to follow the Spirit. It's easier, and in some ways, we find it more comfortable because we're in control. We're actually not going to get any nasty shocks unless we change the syllabus, which when we do on our own, we do it as we approve to do it. So it's easier to follow theology than the Spirit. And what happens is we interpret and develop belief through a particular theologian or a Christian writer or a church leader or apostle or prophet or denomination or stream. You just plug in and go with the flow. But the problem is that an off-the-shelf, one-size-fits-all, pre-packaged, franchise mentality to Christian living isn't freedom. <laughs> but that is what is on offer, very often, under the guise of X-Church, or Y-Church, or X-Stream, or Y-Stream. It's a franchise model. You fit in. Go with the flow. Another question, theologically, are you driven by a desire to be right? You might not think you are, but then when somebody says something you don't agree with and it raises your hackles, you'll realize that you're driven by a desire to be right. I mean, how many of us want to say, yeah, my theology is wrong. I've been believing wrong theology for years and I'm happy with it. You know, we don't, do we? What we believe, funnily enough, we think is right. The mere fact that in this room, probably about 25 different views, you're sat, you're sat with people who disagree with you, who are wrong. <laughs> They're wrong. So, are you driven by a, de a desire to be right? Another mini question, side question is, is it more important to be right than to be loving? It's a hard one, that one, isn't it? It's a hard one. You have to rethink that one so you can come back at it and say, I but you cannot be really loving unless you're right. If these people are wrong, you wouldn't be loving unless you told them that they were wrong and then you're being loving. Is it more important to be right than to be loving? Mm. So are you driven by a desire to be right? Or are you happy to be vulnerable and sometimes uncertain, but driven by a hunger for God? And I tell you what, hunger is the opposite of meh. It is. It is. Never put your faith in theology, especially your own. 
Never. Something I've learned to my detriment over the years. Because, I'll tell you why, because one word from the Holy Spirit spoken into your heart can demolish years of polished, reasoned theology. You've put all that hard work into polishing your reasoned theology for years and you've got it right. You're right, at last. And then the Holy Spirit, with one word, demolished. And God is often in the demolition business. Now, church leaders are particularly happy with members who participate in church life, attend meetings, right? Who pray, read their Bible, right? Who tithe. So give properly rather than just giving God a bit of pocket money every now and then. Right? As some Christians are prone to do. We'll sling him a bit of pocket money. Surely these type of church members are a blessing to any church. But interestingly, this is a description of a Pharisee. I'm not, I'm not saying that the description is wrong for a church member, but it is a description of a Pharisee. John, in John 5, verse 39 to 40, Jesus says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. <coughs> and I think that cartoon sums it up very well. Apologies to those listening on the audio who can't see the cartoon. As I said, the problem with an overemphasis on biblical truth is that it relies on your accepted interpretation. That's the problem. And here's another, here's, put the rocks down, here's another one. <laughs> I believe that without the Holy Spirit, the Bible is just another religious book. See how dangerous it is to read the Bible without the Holy Spirit. You can get into some right trouble. And you can make other people's lives a complete misery. Throw a bit of politics in with it as well and goodness knows. So, you might say, what on earth has all this got to do with Acts of the Apostles? And I would say everything. Because the significance of the book of Acts is not what it tells us about our historical roots, about the birthday of the church, the birthing of the church, and the church's mission, but how it impacts our current situation and circumstances, both corporately and individually. I mean, in the Old Testament, we read of many individuals, people like David, Saul, Samson, etc., who were far from perfect. But nevertheless, they were empowered by God to accomplish his purposes. It says in 
Judges 6, verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Now, in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, this actually literally means the Spirit of the Lord clothed himself with Gideon. Isn't that interesting? The Spirit of the Lord put Gideon on clothed himself with Gideon. And because of Pentecost, God has chosen to clothe his spirit using your body. Not for a brief time, not for a specific task, as it was with the Old Testament approach, but for all time as an expression of incarnation. God and mankind as one. Also in the Old Testament, people sought God, they looked for God in tabernacles and temples, but God has broken out of such structures because they were altogether unsatisfactory to contain his presence. At Pentecost, God poured himself into the only structure that was truly fit to become his spirit's dwelling place. Redeemed humankind. Jesus made it possible for humanity to host the fullness of God on earth. We are God carriers. At his baptism, it says the heavens were literally torn asunder. The heavens were torn. There was not like, let's make a nice, neat little incision. They were ripped apart. At Jesus' baptism, the heavens were ripped apart and Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. But on the day of Pentecost, what Jesus had previously experienced as one man was poured out on a group of people. Joel 2 verse 28, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. All mankind, note. Pentecost marked the beginning of the fulfillment of that prophecy. So Christianity is not the cross. Christianity is the resurrected life. Pentecost didn't birth a religious system or a a new denomination. It birthed a community of people overflowing with a person to fill the earth with his glory. So, how can we experience more of God's presence when we've already received Holy Spirit and we are in union with Christ. There's a little theological conundrum for you. If we're already in Christ, you know, and we've already received Holy Spirit, how on earth can we experience more? Answers on a postcard. Well, it's true that we have received the fullness of God in the Holy Spirit. But how much of that fullness are we experiencing 
and releasing in our lives today. The pursuit of more involves you becoming further awakened to the reality that the presence of God lives inside of you. And that within you has been birthed a relentless pursuit of him. Now that is the essence of the book of Acts and what it reveals to us. And everything else should be built upon that foundation. Let's pray. Stand up. You know what I'm going to ask you to do. So get friendly with somebody next to you. Don't take any liberties. And then repeat the prayer after me. Holy Spirit, I ask for more. I know I have received your fullness, but I know there is more. More of you to be released through me. Thank you for making me your eternal dwelling place. Empower me to surrender more of my life to you so that I can see every area of my life under the influence of your presence. And all the people said, Thank you.